much time as you need to, to get through this. My goal is, first of all, what did Jesus teach? And we looked at a lot of those teachings last week. If you remember, we looked at oaths. We looked at Jesus and his teachings on ruling. The Gentiles rule it over one another, um, but it shall not be so among you. Uh, we also looked at not resisting evil. Um, actually, we looked at love for enemies, I think is what the last one we did. Yeah, we looked at love for enemies. We looked at the Old Testament where David said, I hate my enemies with a pure vengeance. But Jesus loved his enemies. He hung on the cross. And, you know, sometimes we can hear some of these teachings and we can look at them as two ways. We can look at them as thou shalt not. And uh, it's kind of like thou shalt not eat pizza every night. <clears throat> now, if you're if you like pizza, how many like pizza? <clears throat> well, if I told you that you cannot have pizza every night, you'd kind of feel sad about it. But I bet after a couple of weeks, you get so sick of pizza. Uh, you remember when the children of Israel, they complained about meat and the Lord's like, fine, have it your way. And he brought in like six feet of meat to the point where they were like vomiting and stuff from the meat. Um, you know, the Lord knows what's best for his people. And we can look at this either as thou shall not, or we can look at it as, okay, we may not understand it, but... This is how he lived and how he taught us to live. And um, and I have a story to tell you in a little bit, but um, it can do wonders in your heart when you finally give in to this understanding and you trust God. That's what it's really about in the end. It's about trusting God and finding a place of peace in your heart to where bad things can be swirling around you and you're at peace. And isn't that like having salad every night over the pizza? <clears throat> After a while, you know, if you drink water and eat salad for a long period of time and then you go have pizza, it doesn't sit well on your stomach and you kind of start craving the salad. It's weird, but it happens. Um, so let's do that. Let's all turn to Matthew 5. We're going to look at the salad. <clears throat> um, so let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 and... Uh, Last week, we looked at love for enemies. Jesus said um, that his commandment was that we should love our enemies. Um, Jesus said, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which was a little twist on what was said in the Old Testament. But God said in the Old Testament to love your neighbor. And then in another passage in Habakkuk, it said God pretty much hated his enemies. So the Israelites thought, well, that must mean we must be like God and hate our enemies. So it'd be a natural conclusion to say we love our neighbor, hate our enemies. Jesus said, no, not just love your neighbor, but love your enemies. Now we're going to look at another teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, also in Luke chapter um, six. Thank you, Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew chapter five, if I didn't say it already. And let's look at verse 39. Maybe I'll have... Do you want to read it, Sam? Yeah, Matthew 5, 39. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And also verse 40, I guess. I have it written here. If any man will sue thee at the law, Take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Okay. And then the next verse. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't tell you all those. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. 
Uh, no, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> Just about the time you think you got me figured out. <laughs> so his teaching here, and I'm not going to do a lot of commentary because we don't have time for that. But his teaching is do not resist an evil person. Many new translations translate it that way. Obviously, we resist evil. And the rest of the New Testament, it says resist the devil. Right. So we resist evil. But the idea is don't resist an evil person. That's the concept here. So we don't resist an evil person. That's because the next part of the verse says, whoever strikes you on one side of the cheek, turn to him the other. If somebody takes your coat, give him your cloak also. And if somebody asks you to go to mile, go with him too. Now, I find it interesting, without giving much commentary, there's nothing about defending yourself with a gun or going to war. These are all inferences we take from the passage and take it all the way out to those things. These are actually more simple everyday things, if you can see this. You know, you're walking down the road, some Roman soldier says, hey, come carry my pack. And you say, in a, not, not in a, and not in a, um, I'm going to do it because, just to show you, but in an attitude of love, like Christ would have, let me carry it two miles for the soldier. You know, somebody comes over and takes, says, I'm going to take you for that coat. You not only give them your shirt, but your coat too. These are, these are the attitudes that Christ is demanding. And we take from those attitudes all the way out to, well, if somebody's coming in our house, how could I not sue somebody at law and give them my coat? How could I go the mile? How could I, somebody hit me on one side, I give him the other. How could I also kill him? See, we take that and we, we expand it all the way out to those two. Now, is that interpretation correct? Well, let's do some uh, looking at that. But let's just quickly ask, what did Jesus do? How was his life? What we want to do is pattern our lives off of Jesus's life. And, and, and if we just put Jesus in this little box that, well, he had a mission, and this is what you'll hear many times. He had a mission. He was going to die on the cross, and so he had to walk this way. Okay, that is an interpretation. But we have to remember the Bible says if you want to claim to, uh, that Christ abides in you, you must walk as Jesus did. <clears throat> so... If you look at the Sleitheim Confession, which is the Anabaptist Confession of Faith, the very first one in the 1500s, it says over and over, Jesus was like this, so we're like this. Jesus was like this, so we're like this. Over and over and over. That's how they derived the concept of, uh, of these different things. So what did Jesus do? He was led like a lamb, it says, to the slaughter. Romans says, as Christians, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. <clears throat> Jesus, when they came to take him by force, uh, you know, they came in the garden to take him by force. What did his disciples ask? They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Notice what they're ready to do. They're ready to resist the evil person. They had heard that teaching way back on the Sermon on the Mount. Now these soldiers are coming. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Put it in modern day. <clears throat> Lord, should we shoot him with our glocks? You know. Should we take him down? Should we get some pepper spray? Whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> Before Jesus even gives them an answer, they slice off the guy's ear and Jesus turns to Peter and says, suffer ye thus far or permit this or no more of this, some translation says. And then he says, all who live by the sword shall die by the sword. What does that mean? Well, we need to find that out. So, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> sorry. Now, we have pretty much gone through 
what did Jesus teach on oath, on ruling and government, on love for enemies and not resisting evil. And I think we all know those passages. Now what I want to do is go into some of the history. And I'm hoping, let me explain it this way. Way back when I used to be in a different church and I read the passage on the head covering, I used to think to myself, well, it could be hair. You know, maybe it's not just this cloth like everybody says. And it's, a, it's kind of easy to do because down in the passage later, it says he's given her hair for a covering. So you can naturally see how that could be interpreted that way. It was church history that convinced me otherwise. And the reason why is as I researched church history, the early church, even through the Catholic church, up through Luther, and all these people believed that the covering was a cloth. Even theologians today all agree it was a cloth. Now, they might say it's a cultural issue and interpret it away, but they interpreted it as a cloth. So that, to me, pushed it over the edge as I'm trying to find my interpretation. In the same way, we're trying to find out what is the right interpretation for the separation of church and state. And so I think it's only crucial and very important we look at church history. Look at what has the church taught and where did the church take this? So <clears throat> I'll save my story. Somebody raise your hand and remind me at some point to tell my story about back when I was resisting evil in the night. <clears throat> but I'm not ready to tell it yet. <laughs> so Jesus was our example. Before we go into the church history, I just want to remind you, he said, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things I say? This is, a, this is a thing we can fall into. Call him Lord and Master and don't obey him. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said, go into all the world and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Uh, John said, those who say they abide in him must walk as Jesus. Paul told the Thessalonica church, he said, Jesus is coming back and he's going to destroy all those who do not obey the gospel. Not just do not believe, do not obey the gospel. Uh, Hebrews says that Jesus is the eternal, uh, our eternal salvation for all who obey him. So just remember, we must obey Jesus. This is crucial to understand. So how did the early church interpret this? We do run into an issue with interpretation. At the end of the day, that's all it's over. Everybody carries the Bible and says, Jesus said, love your enemies, right? You couldn't go to some Christian and say, Jesus said, love your enemies. And no, he didn't. Like that, everybody agrees what it comes down to is how do we interpret it? So I have, um, let me just say this. I have one, two, three and a half pages of early church quotes. I did not go and pick and choose. I, I just looked up quote after quote after quote. There weren't some quotes out there that they did believe in being in the government and war and all that. It was unanimous. All scholars will agree. It was unanimously taught from the time of the earliest writings we have till the year 300, it was unanimously taught that Christians did not get involved in government, nor did they uh, go to war with their enemies, nor did they take oaths. They took Jesus literally. 
that's not. I was watching the Just War debate. You remember that debate with Matthew Milioni and David Brousseau? No, Dean Taylor and David Brousseau, and then the other two guys. And when David Brousseau made that point, they looked at him and they, they, they just stumped him for a minute when he said there is not one quote that can prove that they went to war or got involved in government. <clears throat> now, let's hear from their mouth. This is Tertullian. And he says he's talking about all of their parties and public meetings and spectacles and rodeos and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Of course, they didn't have rodeos back then, but it was the arena. <clears throat> he says there is not anything more foreign to us than the affairs of the state. Did you hear that? There is not anything more foreign to us than the affairs of the state. We acknowledge one all embracing commonwealth. Now, what you have to understand about the early church and what they understood was that they didn't believe in nationalism. Like, how many of you, when you see this, you know, there's just something in your heart that jumps a little bit. You know, when you're in a foreign country for a while, and you see this, you're just like, oh, that's a beautiful flag. Right? We do have a pretty cool looking flag. I mean, did I say we? <laughs> I have it right in me, I guess. Um, I was going to draw this before. I'm not an artist, but this is going to be my best rendition of an AR. <laughs> there you go. Separation of Church and state. He says, we, we acknowledge one all-embracing commonwealth. In other words, there's no borders in the citizens of heaven. In the kingdom of God, the borders extend all the way around the world. Our brothers and sisters are citizens just as much in Africa than they are in Germany, than they are in Africa. Did I say Africa? Uh, than they are in Australia. Okay, so <clears throat> they say, we acknowledge one all-embracing commonwealth. And he goes on. Origin, he says this. He's talking to Celsus. Now, Celsus was a guy that opposed Christianity, and he was writing to Origen, trying to convince him, get involved in government, you know, change the laws, you know, fight for the king. You can make this Christian. And Celsus said, uh, he says, Celsus urges us to take office in the government of the country, and it's necessary for the maintenance of the laws and the support of religion. By the way, do we not hear that today? And what does Origen say? But we recognize in each state the existence of another national organization. Notice what he's referencing. In each state, there's another organization, and that is the kingdom of God, founded by the word of God. And then he goes on to explain, Christians decline public offices, but they, that they may reserve themselves for a more divine and necessary service for the salvation of men. I was shocked at, you know, I came a little convicted after reading these quotes, how much they saw their prayer life and their life of holiness and their life of, of saving men as, as why they didn't go fight. They didn't just say because it was commanded us. You know, they saw themselves as fighting for the king with prayer. It was weird. But we maybe we're commanded to do that. We're commanded to pray for kings and, and um, so make supplications. Lactantius, he was in the year 300. God might have bestowed upon his people both riches and kingdoms like he did the Jews, he goes on to explain. But then he says this, but he would have Christians live under the power of gov the government of others, 
Why, he says, lest they should become corrupted by the happiness of prosperity, slide into luxury, and eventually despise the commandments of God. He said that God would, he could have done it just like the Jews and let them get involved and have their own kingdoms and governments, but he's decided not to for the Christians because it would go to their own uh, hurt. It would cause them to slide into luxury and despise God's commandments. <clears throat> okay, that was just some quotes about getting involved in government. Now, I want to read you. I mean, we have this many quotes, and I'm just going to skip through them quickly about love for enemies and oaths. Here's Polycarp. He was a disciple of John. Now, John the Apostle, the one that leaned on Jesus' breast, Polycarp died as a martyr. Um, he said this. He said, um, God will raise us up also if we do his will and we walk in his commandments abstaining from all unrighteousness, covetousness, love of money, evil speaking, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing or blow for blow or cursing for cursing. That comes out of the book of Peter. Jesus was our example. He didn't curse back when they cursed him. He didn't threaten back when they threatened him. Okay. That's the earliest Polycarp was on 100. Um, Athangora says the same thing, not returning blow for blow. Justin Martyr, he was in Rome. Listen to this, he said, we who used to formally murder one another now refrain from making war upon our enemies. Irenaeus from the year 180, he was in France. Now remember, you remember the map, we have like the Roman Empire was all around, I forget the name of that sea, who remembers it? Mediterranean, Mediterranean. all around, all these Mediterranean kingdoms, <clears throat> Northern Africa, Jerusalem, Rome and Italy over here, France over here. So all these guys are from all over the place. They're not just from one area. This is Christianity in the whole Roman Empire. Um, I love this quote. He says, this is uh, Irenaeus, he says, from France. The new covenant brings back peace. Now, what, what's he referencing? Brings back peace? I mean, peace wasn't really in the kingdom of Israel. They're always warring. I think he's talking about back to the Garden of Eden. And I really think that's what the New Covenant's about. It brings back peace, he says. And he says that Christians are now not accustomed to fighting, but when smitten, they offer the other cheek. Clement of Alexandria, he was from Egypt. Above all, Christians are not allowed to correct with violence the delinquencies of sin. Get that. If somebody's doing something wrong, we are not allowed to correct with violence. Another quote from the same guy. The church is an army of peace which sheds no blood. We are trained in peace, not in war. Notice, we are called the sons of peace. We, we are, Jesus was a lamb. Okay, Tertullian, he was from Africa. This is an interesting quote. He says, there's people asking right now about whether a Christian, a believer, may turn himself in unto military service. Now, we have that question today. Can we go serve in the military? And he says, or whether the military may be admitted to the faith. Okay. Can we allow Christians that are already in the military become part of the church? Or can George go join the military? But how, now notice his answer. But how will a Christian man war or serve even in peace without a sword? How, will, how can a Christian use a sword is his concept which the Lord has taken away. 
For all those soldiers came to John. Remember John the Baptist? This is an argument you'll hear. People say, oh, John the Baptist came and he said, you know, all these commandments to John. He says, all those soldiers came to John and a centurion believed even under Jesus. Still, the Lord afterward in disarming Peter disarmed every soldier. You get that? So when he said, put away your sword... For all who live by the sword shall die by the sword. Tertullian quoted that as applying now to all Christianity, all soldiers that want to be Christians. Tertullian said the Christian does not harm even his foe. Um, he says, when a man becomes a believer and faith has been sealed, there must either be an immediate abandonment of military office. So either abandon it or, he says, all sorts of quibbling will be resorted to in order to not offend God, you have to say, okay, don't take any oaths, you know, don't kill anybody with the sword, all this quibbling to not offend God. And the early church actually allowed Christians in the military, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, it is an interesting concept. Um, Hippolytus, which was in Italy, he was around the year 200, a soldier of the civil authority must be taught not to kill men. And to refuse to do so if he is commanded. This is how Christians, if you ever hear somebody say, well, there are some quotes where there's some Christians in the military. You can say, yeah, that's true, actually. There are some stories where Christians were in the military. But this is how the church dealt with it. They said, you have to not kill men or take a note. Those are the two things. So even when commanded. So you, if a Christian became a Christian in the early church, it's a little bit weird, but if, if a Christian... If a person wanted to become a Christian in the early church and he was in the military, they would say, you cannot kill men anymore. Now, this was an all right time to do it because it was the time of peace in Rome, the Pax Romana. There wasn't as much warring and they were building aqueducts and things like that. So there was more chances that they might have never have had to kill somebody. But if they were commanded to kill somebody, it meant their life. They would not kill somebody. So... Uh, this is what it says. It says, he must be commanded not to kill man and to refuse to do so if he is commanded and to refuse to take a note. They took that literally. If he is not willing to comply, he must be rejected for baptism. That's harsh. I mean, that's strong. But what they said is they wouldn't take him in as a member of the church if they wouldn't take that, um, take that command from Christ. And then he says this, this is even stronger. He says, a military commander, the one that stands, you know, at the top and says, you kill here and you go over here and you kill that person. He says, he must resign or be rejected. If an applicant or a believer seeks to become a soldier, he must be rejected. So the church didn't want new Christians joining the military. But if you were in the military when you joined the church... You just had to say you wouldn't kill anybody and you would not take an oath. Does that make sense? Am I reading that? <clears throat> okay. So we're up to about the year 200. 248, Origen. He says this. I'm just trying to see if... Oh, yeah, okay. To those who inquire us from where we come and who our founders, we reply that we have come agreeably to the counsels or the commandments of Jesus. We have converted into pruning hooks the spears that were formerly used in war. We no longer take up swords against nations, and we do not learn war anymore. 
you know how crazy this is? Now, I'm going to use Timothy as an example. Like, what if I, now let's say like Timothy owned his weapons for self-defense for a minute. And what if I came out and found Timothy out in the garage with a big old, you know, anvil and a nice good old hammer just beating his seven millimeter, you know, <laughs> that he paid a lot of money for and he likes a lot. Um, and he's just beating it. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm making this into a plow. I'm going to feed men now. I'm going to be a farmer with it. That's how drastic that was. Or, or you know, Caleb, with the, what, is he, what is your rifle? A 17? Some, yeah. You know, what if he found him beating his and he was making a hook, you know, to prune trees so fruit could be provided to God's people. That's how insane this is. I mean, we think it's a little bit interesting, but the early church interpreted those Old Testament passages that said we will beat our, our swords into plowshares as the fulfillment of the Christians and their love for their enemies. That's intense. <clears throat> okay, and so this Celsus guy, he's critiquing, he's an opponent of Christianity, and he's talking to Origen, trying to convince him that he's wrong. This is what Celsus said. He says, how could God, now this is an argument we hear all the day, all, all the time today. How could God command the Israelites through Moses to gather wealth, to extend their dominion, to fill the earth, to put their enemies of every age to the sword and to destroy them utterly. And then on the other hand, his son, Jesus, gives laws quite opposite. Have you ever heard this before? How could God tell everyone of them to kill people in the Old Testament? And the New Testament, he says, love your enemies. So he's trying to get origin into a, a hole. And he says, he declares that no one can come to the Father who loves power, riches, and glory. So he says, Jesus says you can't come to God if you love power, riches, and glory. But in the Old Testament, he commanded all those things. How could that be the same God? He says, Jesus said that to anyone who has given them one blow, they should offer to receive another. So is it Moses or Jesus who taught falsely? This is this was an argument going on back in the second century. Which God are you going to choose, Origen? <clears throat> when the father sent Jesus, did he forget the commandments that he had given Moses? Or did he change his mind and condemn his own laws and send forth a messenger with opposite instructions? Wow. I mean, they were dealing with this back then. This is what Origen said. We would observe that it is impossible for the laws of Moses taken literally to harmonize with the calling of the Gentiles. Did you hear that? There's no way to harmonize the two. So when we try to flatten the Bible and harmonize the Old Testament with the New Testament and say somehow they all apply to us, it doesn't work. We have to see it in a, a, a lens, a framework of that was God dealing with Israel and this is how God deals with the church. See, he says it can't harmonize. Did you get that? Origin. This was the uh, Christian in the day, a, a theologian, or I don't know what you would want to call him. He says it is impossible for the Jews to preserve their civil economy unchanged if they were to embrace the gospel. For Christians can't kill their enemies. Did you get that? It's impossible for the Jews to choose the gospel because Christians aren't allowed to kill their enemies. And then he goes on to make his point that look at Christianity. Look at how far Judaism spread with force. And look how far Christianity is spreading with love. 
And he goes on to show that it's spreading throughout the whole world. And, and, and he says, and we're doing this by not using swords. <clears throat> then Celsus urges him, help the king with all your might, labor with him, maintain justice and fight for him. Have you ever heard those feelings? Yeah. Well, what did, what did Origen say to him? He says, this is our answer. We do give help to the king. And we do this in obedience to the command of the apostle, where Paul says, I exhort that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving made for all men and for kings. And he says, listen to this. And this is where I was convicted. Our prayers defeat demons who stir up wars. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that when we come here on Wednesday night and we put Ukraine on the board, that our prayers are defeating the demons that are stirring up wars? I sometimes, I mean, I don't know if I ever do, honestly. And so that's where it convicted me. Like, this is how they dealt with non-resistance. They viewed their prayer life as being more powerful than using force. What does the Bible say? It says, our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty. Pulling down of strongholds, right? <clears throat> they took it literally. So then he says this, our prayers defeat the demons. And in this way, we are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight. Indeed, we do fight under even him if he demands it. Yet we fight on his behalf, forming a special army, an army of godliness by offering our prayers to God. And I didn't read that right. He said, indeed, we do not fight under him, even if he demands it. Yet we fight with prayer. Did you get that? Is that clear? So, so far, we're up to the year 248. We're almost done. I know it's getting lots of quotes, but we're almost done. Um, Cyprian said Christians do not attack their attackers in return for it's not lawful for the innocent Christians, innocent, to kill even the guilty. Uh, and I'll just quickly. It's the same things. You know, we don't listen to this. We would rather shed our own blood than stain our hands and our conscience with that of another. That's good. Uh, that was from a 305. And then Lactantius, which, by the way, we're going to talk about Constantine next here. But Lactantius was a was a um, advisor to Constantine. And he said, the Christian does injury to no one. He does not desire the property of others. Now, listen to this. In fact, he doesn't even defend his own property. If it is taken to him from him by violence. Did you hear that? I'll tell you my story. So I was sitting one night in my house and I used to be, you know, resistant. I had guns, you know, I had ammunition stored under my piano and gold. And I also had a nice little line going across the driveway that would beep when anybody would come over. And, you know, I'd be sleeping and I'd hear this beep and I'd jump up, you know, with my, my gun. I forget which one. And I'd be like looking out the window and like, who's out there? Well, this happened night after night, you know, I don't know what kind of deer would walk out there with metal on it or what, but <laughs> <laughs> something squirrel. I don't know, but something would constantly go over that thing at night and wake me up. And then I'd be, you know, in a frenzy and I'd run out there and, you know, I'm resisting, you know, I'm, I'm worried about defending my family and all of that. <clears throat> and I remember when I started seeing the truth of loving my enemies and not resisting evil. And when I finally just gave it up and I sold my guns and I sold my ammo and I, you know, I just decided that I'm no longer going to keep these man killers because I had a, I had one of those ARs and I had 
a Glock, and, you know, I was ready to kill if I needed to. And I remember the peace. I started sleeping. I took, I turned off that little beeping thing. I'm just like, well, what does it matter? If the guy comes in, he might as well shoot me while I'm sleeping because I'm not going to kill him. And I know that sounds weird. It's like eating salad. But after a while, it's like I started sleeping and not worrying and, and the stress came down and it was just like, I'm going to obey Jesus anyway. I'm going to trust him. And it took a while, but I became the peace that I had compared to the idea that I, it was up to me to stop the enemy, which, you know, how often does that really happen? What are you going to live your life in terror? Always defending <clears throat> now. So we've heard the first 300 years. And let's, <clears throat> we're going through a walk through church history. We have the Bible. We have the teachings of Jesus. What do they mean? That's what we're trying to figure out. We have from the year about zero, we'll say, or 32, when 30, I think it's 33 or whatever, when Jesus died. And we'll put, you know, 100, 200, 300. And the witness of the early church till this time was that they loved their enemies. It was unanimous. It, it's agreed upon. We don't need to, like, try to say there's some hidden agenda there. It's how they interpreted Jesus' commandments. Okay, so then I want you to pay attention what happens. In the year around 300, <clears throat> a man named Constantine, and you'll hear this name a lot in church history, but he was an, he was an emperor in Rome. And if you watch, there's a, there's a little documentary on all the emperors of Rome and all the vicious battles they had and this and that. But <clears throat> he saw a vision. He was in a battle. He was against this guy, Max, Max Tantius, I want to say. And he wanted to, he was going against him. I think Max Tantius was over here on the eastern side. And he was in Rome, if I remember right. And he was going to go over, invade, and take over. They always had their reasons why this made sense. You know, maybe it was for power. Maybe it was for whatever. But... He was in this battle and he was worried he was going to lose and he had a dream and in his dream he saw some people say it was a cross some people say it was another Greek letter which the Christians used in their day but for now we'll just imagine it was a cross he sees this cross in the sky and it says in this sign conquer and so he woke up and he said uh, however that was he, he said we're going to fight the battle we're going to put the sign on our on our on our implements right are up uh, shields thank you and we're going to go fight this battle with the sign of jesus because that's what was in and and he won the battle amazingly you know and he he thought wow you know now think of it from a pagan ruler's mind you know you're just appeasing the gods he wasn't a christian he didn't he at this point the christians had been persecuted in fact diocletian which was the emperor of time or two before was one of the worst persecutions in around 290 of the Christians. So they've been just pummeled and put underground and they still believe this doctrine of loving their enemies. Well, Constantine sees the sign and he says, in this sign, concrete, puts it on all these shields, they go fight the battle and they win. And he thinks, wow, this is great. I won the battle. So <clears throat> at that point in time, Christianity was viewed as subversive. It was viewed as they would not say Caesar is Lord. Jesus is my master, not Caesar. Right. And so this whole event caused Constantine to start to favor Christianity. 
Maybe there's something to these guys. Maybe their God is the right God. And so he started to favor them and he actually issued a decree. The toleration of Christians. Up to this point, they weren't tolerated, but now we're going to tolerate them. We're going to allow them in our presence. We're going to allow them. And he started even changing his coins. On one side of the coin was a pagan god. And on the other side was some Christian symbol. And we start to get this interesting mix of Christianity, one side of the coin, other side, some pagan god. Then he started doing some interesting things. He started returning property to Christians that they had lost during Diocletian's rule. He allowed the church to start using the post system that only special people could use. He started giving the church tax exemption. Um, He gave the the, the clergy salaries. He started paying the the pastors and the bishops. Um, He built two great temples for the church. Basilias, they were called. He issued a statute that placed Christian worship throughout the empire, their worship centers, to be enlarged and more beautiful and more magnificent. Do you see what's going on? We're just talking about this little portion of time. He sees this vision and now he starts to favor the church. Tax exempts, pays their salaries, starts building them temples. Um, He even gave up one of his own palaces for the Roman bishop there in in that area. You know, can you imagine Roger? (laughs) (laughs) Or Mark hanging out in in uh, Constantine's palace. Let's go visit him. <laughs> um, he attempted to mediate church disputes. I mean, this guy's not even a Christian yet, and he's starting to mediate church disputes. <clears throat> he started to emphasize religious uh, liberty and letting other religions have freedom. Now, get this, by his death, which I think was around 330-something, I want to say 336, by his death, half of the empire was now proclaiming Christianity. We're talking like 30 years. Half of the, Now, do you think they were all Christians? Like, die hard, like, let's uh, serve Jesus? I don't know. Um, I can only uh, speculate. Before Constantine took ruler, it took courage to be a Christian. By the time Constantine had died, it took courage to be a pagan. That's what happened in this little short period of time. The church went from being a persecuted minority to an established majority. Now, that's interesting. You may think, well, that's a little bit much. Well, get this. By 395, right here, 100 years, by 395, it is estimated that the empire was 95% Christian in little than 100 years. Now, was this a blessing for the church or was this a Trojan horse? You all know what a Trojan horse is? Raise your hand if you know what a Trojan horse is. Okay, some of you don't. That's where that town, they like put the horse outside and they act like it was a gift and they brought it into the town. And once it got in, you know, oh, nice gift. And there were soldiers in there. And when they jumped out of the horse, they took over the town. Or it was like a walled city, right? So was this a Trojan horse for the church? Or was this a blessing? 
Let's look at Constantine's life. He was a very wicked man. He had a sister, and this was after all these occurrences. He had a sister who had, was married to a, the eastern side, member of the eastern side of Rome, if you can imagine, over here. I think his name was Licinius. He was his brother-in-law. Well, he had a reason he didn't like him anymore, so he goes over there, and he invades his land, and he takes him. <clears throat> And he promises his sister-in-law that I will, um, I will let your husband live for the rest of his life in peace. One month later, he killed him. <clears throat> he also murdered his own son, Crispus. He also killed his nephew, he thought was after his throne. He murdered his second wife fearing she was plotting against him. And during this time, there's no writings that I have heard of that the church came out and said, Constantine, you need to repent. This is wrong. Constantine continued with his wicked deeds and the church allowed it. They looked the other way. He bequeathed, now get this, he gave his kingdom to his two sons, three sons and two nephews when he died in the year 330 something. After he died, they were all Christian, by the way. The sons now were Christian and the nephews. After he died, one son slew two of his nephews, the two nephews, and all the males that were anything to do with him. This is what we do in Christianity now. And the um, other two sons that were still living, one invaded the other's territory. Does that sound like power struggles? <clears throat> in fact, more, I think I read this in David Brousseau's book, more civil wars happened, listen to this, in the first 50 years of the new Christian empire than it happened in all of the 200 years of the pagan Roman empire. And then you'll read in your history books that Rome fell only a couple decades later. So Christianity comes in. Wow, great. What happens? Just a couple decades later, Rome falls. And you know who it falls to? They'll say, oh, they were barbarians or something like this. They were German of descent, and they had been living up in the northern areas of Rome. And guess what? They were Christians. So the Christians invaded the Christians and took down Rome. That's what happened within this little period of time. Just this little period. Okay? So what I'm trying to show you is, did when the church decided to mix, did it help the church? Or did it become something that should have never become? Has the church ever recovered from this? In fact, it was right around this period of time. I'll put, we'll put 500 here. It was right around this time that a man named Augustine. How, how many of you have heard of Augustine? Uh, Augustus, some people call him. In fact, Martin Luther. How many of you heard of Lutherans? How many of you heard of uh, Presbyterians? Those were guys in the Catholic Church years later in the 1500s. We'll talk about this hopefully later. But they looked back and they saw all the terribleness happening here in the Catholic Church. And they said, let's go back to Augustine and his theology. Augustine brought a new interpretation of the church called election. I mean, you heard of election. You know, God chooses us, doesn't we? don't have free will. He brought that new theology into the church. He also brought into the church 
the idea that the church can use force now to bring in sinners. Have you ever heard of the Inquisitions? Where the Catholic Church whipped and beat and killed and interrogated people? Have you ever heard of the Anabaptists being burned at the stake? You know how that all got justified? Because way back here, this theologian used a passage in um, Scripture that Jesus said compel them. You ever heard of that, uh, that, that parable that says, Jesus says, go out in the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. Augustine interpreted that to mean compel by force to come in. And from that time on, the church, the Catholic church, used that to say, we can use force now to, to punish our people. And in his writings, he actually says it's better to use force and even use some violence on them to bring them back so that they can be taught. Not only that, but Augustine brought in the concept of, have you ever heard of just war? That's where it started. It's called the just war doctrine. And it means we can go to battle as long as it's a just cause. You ever heard like this concept? We can fight our enemies because, you know, we want peace. We want to love our family and our country. So we fight our enemies, not because we want to kill them, but because we need to ensure peace. See, that's the, that's the idea. It's called just war. It's a, it's a just cause. Now, I, ask, I have a question. Has there ever been a battle that you can remember where Christians were like, this is not just, we can't fight it? It doesn't seem to pan out. I mean, even in Nazi Germany, the Christians were fighting for Hitler against the Christians in the United States. And both must have thought it was a just cause, right? So this is what happened. In this little short span, and especially this span right here, from about right here to about right here, I would see in history as the church becoming corrupted with this new idea, this merging of the church and the state. And, and it makes sense from that mindset. We now have power. We're a Christian Rome now, right? Why not use force to defend our, our people? Why not use force to, uh, to promulgate good? You know, all it takes for evil to abound is for good men to do nothing. Why not use force? Does that make sense? It makes sense logically. But I'm hoping that we have seen here that I don't think the church has ever tr truly recovered from this period right here. And I think it serves us well to analyze, do we want to be part of that new interpretation and all the things it brings? Or do we want to be like the early ones who, who you know, you read accounts where there's Roman soldiers and they're watching the faith of these Christians as they're dying. And I remember reading this one. They're all out on this lake and it's freezing. And, and the emperor commanded them, go out on the lake and let them all die. And so the Christians are out there. And I don't think they had any clothes on, as I remember. And they're dying and freezing out there. And the soldiers are there watching them. And I don't know what they were doing, if they were praying, if they were singing. But the soldiers saw that and one of them took and maybe it was all of them but they took off their clothes and they became christians with them because of their suffering love because of who they were being like jesus and the holy spirit in them which one do we want to be like there's another account where 
They were the gladiators were out there fighting and, and, and the Christians were being marred up by animals and all these people were around in the Colosseum and they were watching and they were saying, you know, watching these Christians dying and, you know, like a Perpetua and those kind of people. And people would just throw themselves in to die with the Christians because they were converted because of the, the what they saw the people standing for. That's the kind of suffering love that we want, the kind that Jesus was. So um, hopefully, <clears throat> if we can continue, I want to look lastly at interpretations and everyday examples of this. How can we really live this out? But I felt it was necessary that we do a quick walk through history and see. And if I might spend a little bit more time on the Lutherans and the, uh, the Anabaptists and the um, Presbyterians on the next session, just a little bit. Um, but thank you for your time and may God bless each one.